Welcome back to the Hemingway List Year of War and Peace to talk about Book 1, Chapter 21. There's a new count in town, and Anna has wasted no time in putting in her request once the job was done. Chelsea Cadu said this, I've spent the last three days annoyed at Pierre and how he has been acting around his father's deathbed. Then I remembered how uncomfortable I was visiting my grandmother during her last weeks. I was in my early 20s and it was not my first experience with death, but it was the first time I saw someone dying. My parents and aunts all knew how to act and I felt very out of place. I didn't know how to comfort and normally revert to humour when I'm uncomfortable, which was obviously not an option. Remembering this, I felt very connected to Pierre today. On a lighter note, does anyone know a good recipe for Russian tea? I'm a big tea drinker, and they mention Russian tea in this chapter. I thought it might be fun to try. Hey, great question. That's a great question. And, by the way, thanks for adding in a lighter note, because these last few chapters, I tell you what, a lighter note is what we've needed. It has been a bit intense. Mississippi Reader says... Wait, no, I'm going to skip that. Uh, I'll read it. I started it. I'll read it. I think what adds to the awkwardness is how Pierre is being treated by everyone else. He's snuck in the back door by Anna. Every time he has an encounter with Prince Vasily, it's more like, oh, hey, you're here, as opposed to him feeling like he's expected to be there. Princess Princess Chassis clearly is not a fan And although I do not think Anna has done Pierre a service by including him in these last few moments of his father's life, she treats him as if his opinion is of either no importance or certainly of second importance. I found it very odd that Anna, Vasily and the princess run into the room upon word that the Count has died, but yet Pierre never attempts to enter, nor does Anna offer for him to go in and see his father. I think that shows a lot where he stands. I think he did um, go in, didn't he? I think he goes in and falls asleep in there, actually, next to him. Um, I might be wrong. Okay, Warren Kovofi says this, If I am not mistaken, it's spelt, by the way, C-O-V-F-E-F-E. Kovofi. Warren Kovofi says this, If I'm not mistaken, the preferred method of tea drinking in Russia and other Slavic countries is just plain black tea. I think lemon is used sometimes, but I think it's just black tea with nothing in it generally. I believe there are some Russians in the sub, so maybe they can verify this. Korsho, who I believe is Russian, because they're reading the Russian version of the book, says absolutely correct. Many people also make zavarka, which is strong concentrate in a teapot, but then pour some zavarka in a cup and dilute it with hot water to taste. If you want to go full traditional, boil water in a samovar. Oh, that's definitely what they do, because they mention samovars in this book so many bloody times. Grumpy Shakespearean says this, I don't quite know what to make of Anna. I've oscillated on her. She and Vasily and Katerina are all schemers who manipulated a dying man for their own financial gain, but Anna seems in general genuinely dire straits and is doing all of this to help Boris. What is her lawsuit about? Who is she suing and why? Or is she being sued? I have questions. You know, I've read the book and I still don't know. Maybe it is revealed at some point, but if it is, I don't remember. Ripster66 says, The intrigue with the will was so well done. In the previous chapter, we watched the princess 
the prince, sorry, and the eldest daughter position themselves near the dying man's bed through naive Pierre's eyes, who doesn't understand what's going on. It's ratcheted up the tension for me significantly, and then to have it culminate in a tug of war at bedroom door was great high drama. Agreed. All right, I'm going to read the next chapter now. There's a lot of comments still to read. Uh, I'm going to read one more. Little Storff said, Got to respect that maternal instinct from Anna. I hope it's genuinely for Boris that she's doing all this work. She sure is effective. You know, I always had the feeling that she... Um, she was doing it for Boris and for her. You know, this whole thing about trying to get Pierre the inheritance was so that she could get some of it. But I also do think that somewhere in her... I think she's justified herself getting involved because I feel like she believes it belongs to Pierre as well. Like, I think she is doing it for Pierre because she thinks it's the right thing to do. Also because there's a vested interest that she thinks she can get some of it. But, I mean, as a reader, I feel like it's Pierre's rightful inheritance. His father specified that he wants Pierre to have it. And I think Anna has that kind of maternal instinct might even sort of flow on a little bit to Pierre. You know, I think she looks after him. She kind of sees him, you know, in the same way she sees her own son. Someone that she, as a mother, can fight battles for. So I think there is a bit of a... As much as she is a a schemer, I also think she has some kind of a moral compass about it. Anyway, let's read chapter 25. It's a long one and it's a change of scene. So get ready to be in a whole new place with a whole new character. Because here we go. Chapter 25. Prince. Prince Nicholas Andreevich Bolkonsky's estate was called Bald Hills. And at Bald Hills, they were expecting Prince Andrei Bolkonsky and his pregnant wife to rock up any day now. Of course, the strict daily routines of the old prince's household went uninterrupted, but in the background of these routines there now lingered the question, where the bloody hell are they? Generally, uh, sorry, General-in-Chief Prince Nicholas Andreevich Bolkonsky, nicknamed in society the King of Prussia, had lived at Bald Hills with his daughter Mary and her companion Mademoiselle Borine ever since... Emperor Paul had exiled him to the idyllic country estate. Even though nowadays old Paulie had gotten the boot, and under the new reign, old man Bolkonsky was free to go wherever he pleased, still he chose not to return to any city, but to remain in the countryside, telling anyone who wanted to see him that they could travel the hundred miles from Moscow to Bald Hills, because he didn't need jack shit from them. He had a saying, there are only two sources of human vice, idleness and superstition, and only two virtues, activity and intelligence. He took it upon himself to educate his daughter, teaching her algebra and geometry to develop those, these two cardinal virtues, and made sure that her days were always busy. He kept constantly busy too, writing his memoirs, doing tricky maths problems, turning snuff boxes on a lathe, gardening and overseeing the construction that was always going on at his estate. Strict regularity was of utmost importance to him, and so regularity was carried out in his house with pinpoint precision. He always came to the table in the exact same way, at the exact same time, to the minute. 
He was so exact and strict that everyone around him, from his daughter to his serfs, feared and respected him as if he were a hard-hearted son of a bitch. Though he wasn't, he had feelings, sort of. He was in retirement now and no longer had any influence in political affairs, but that didn't stop every high official appointed to his province from visiting him, as if it were a duty they must fulfil. They'd come and wait in the lofty antechamber, just like the architect, gardener or Princess Mary would, until the prince would appear at the exact minute of their appointment, and they'd feel, they'd all feel the same jolt of fear and respect when the stupidly high study door would finally open, and the little old man would come out with his small old hands, big grey eyebrows, powdered wig, and a frown that hid the youthful glint in his eyes. On the morning of that day, sorry, on the morning of the day that Prince Andre and his wife Lisa were due to arrive, Princess Mary went into the antechamber at the usual appointed time for a morning greeting. She crossed herself and repeated a silent prayer, as she did every day. And feeling the small, the same small anxiety she did every day, praying that the daily interview would go well. An old powdered manservant who was sitting in the antechamber, hopped up and whispered to Princess Mary, Please, go in. She could hear the regular hum of a lathe through the door. She opened it timidly. It opened smoothly and silently. She paused. The prince was working at the lathe. He glanced around at his daughter, then turned back to his work. The massive study was full of things, evidently in constant use. The large table covered with books and plans a tall glass-doored bookcase with keys in the locks, a high table for standing at with writing things and an exercise book on it, and the lathe with tools handy and shavings everywhere. (coughs) Excuse me. All these things had clearly been used continuously for a long time. The rocking of his small silver-embroidered tartar boot on the lathe pedal and the firm movement of the strong, sinewy hand showed that the prince was still a hardy and tenacious old bugger. After a few more spins of the lathe, he took his foot off the pedal, wiped his chisel, popped it into its leather pouch attached to the lathe, and moved towards the table, beckoning his daughter over. He wasn't the type to give his children a blessing, so instead he simply presented his bristly cheek, he hadn't shaved yet, and took a stern and fatherly look at his daughter. Take a seat, love. Are you well? He grabbed the exercise book full of geometry lessons that he'd written himself and pulled a chair up with his foot. Tomorrow's one. Tomorrow's one, he said, marking a particular paragraph with a scratch of his nail. The princess craned her neck over the exercise book to get a look. Hang about, I've got a letter for you, said the old man suddenly. He took a letter from a bag hanging above the table and tossed it onto the table. It was addressed to Princess Maya in a woman's hand. She quickly grabbed it, turning red, and bent her head over it. From Heloise, asked the princess. Sorry. From Heloise, asked the prince, with a cold smile that showed his yellowish but pretty decent for his age teeth. Yeah, it's from Julie, she replied. She glanced at him and smiled timidly. Two more letters, that's all, before I start reading them. I'll let two more pass,' said the prince, matter-of-factly. 
I'm sure you two are talking absolute rhubarb. I'll read the third, believe you me. You can read any of them, father, said the princess, blushing and holding the letter to him in offering. For crying out loud, I said the third, cried the prince, suddenly slapping the letter away. He leaned his elbows on the table and pulled the geometry book back towards him. Well, madam, he said, leaning over the book close to his daughter and wrapping an arm around the back of her chair so that she was surrounded by the smell of tobacco and oldness, a smell she'd known for yonks. These triangles here, see how they're equal? That means that the angle ABC... She was shitting herself, looking at her father's glittering eyes, red splotches coming and going in her cheeks. She didn't have the foggiest what he was saying, and became scared that her fear itself would prevent her from understanding what her father was saying, no matter how clearly he explained it. Whether, whether it was the teacher's fault or the student's, she always, every day, failed to follow what he taught. Every day she would try not to let her eyes glaze over, then she would become incapable of seeing or hearing anything. She would only be aware of her father's old face close to hers, his breath and his smell. She would want to get away as quickly as possible to take the maths problems to her room and figure them out in peace. The old man would come increasingly. The old man would become increasingly pissy, moving his chair back and forth noisily, trying not to crack it, but almost always eventually cracking it at her and chucking the book across the room. The princess had a stab at an answer. Flamin' hell, you bloody dickhead, shouted the prince, pushing the book aside and turning away from her, then immediately shooting up his, to his feet and pacing back and forth. He stopped, lightly touched his daughter's hair and sat down again. He drew up his chair and tried again to explain. No good, no good, not happy, princess, said he, after the lesson was complete and Princess Mary was about to leave, having closed and taken the exercise book with the next day's lesson. You've got to know your mathematics, love. I don't want you to be another dipshit lady. You'll like maths once you get the hang of it, he said, patting her on the cheek. It'll drive all the codswallop out of your head. She turned to head off, but he stopped her with a gesture and grabbed an uncut book from the high desk. This one is a kind of key to the mysteries that your Heloise has sent you. Religious. Not that I get involved with anyone's beliefs. I've had a look at see at it. Take it, all right? Off your trot. Go on. He gave her a pat on the shoulder and then closed the door behind her. Princess Mary went back to her room with the same sad and scared expression that she nearly always wore, and that made her plain, sickly face even plainer. She sat down at her messy writing table, littered with books, paper and miniature portraits. The princess was, a, was as untidy as her father was tidy. She chucked the geometry book down and quickly broke the seal on her letter. It was from Julie Caragina, her bestie, since they were kids. The same Julie Caragina who had been at the Rostov's name day party. Julie wrote in French, Dear darling friend, how much does this suck, being separated? It's, it's the worst. I'm so codependent on you for happiness, it's crazy. And we're soulmates. You'd think being soulmates would mean that no matter the distance between us, our bond would stay strong, but, and even with the beautiful distractions all around me, I still can't stop feeling glum that we're not together. 
I wish we could hang out like last summer in your big study on the blue sofa, the confidential sofa. Why can't I just look at your beautiful, gentle, calm face like I could three months ago and feel comforted? I can see your face in my mind now, even as I write. Having read this much, Princess Mary sighed and took a squiz in the mirror, standing to her right. It reflected a weak, awkward figure and a thin face. Her eyes were always sad, and now there was a hint of hopelessness there too in her reflection. She's too kind, thought the princess, turning away and continuing to read. But Julie wasn't just blowing smoke, she meant it. The princess did have nice eyes, deep and shiny. Sometimes it even seemed they radiated warm light. They were such lovely eyes that they saved her from being ugly. And even though beautiful might have been a bit of a stretch, those soulful eyes gave her something beyond beauty. But the princess never saw that special something in her eyes, the look they had when she was not thinking of herself. As with everyone, her face took on a slightly unnatural and forced expression as soon as she looked in the mirror. She kept reading. All they talk about in Moscow is war. One of my two brothers has already gone abroad, the other is with the guards, who are starting their march to the frontier. Our emperor, total legend by the way, has left Petersburg and they reckon he wants to go abroad to the war. I just pray that the Corsican monster who is currently destroying all peace in Europe can be overthrown by our sovereign. Thank beautiful, gorgeous, almighty God we have that legend, seriously. And it's not just my brothers that this war has taken away from me, it's also taken away the one guy closest to my heart, Nicholas Rostov. With his enthusiasm, there was no chance he would stay home and do nothing. He's left university to join the army. I confess to you, Mary, that even though he's really young, him going off to war has got me really depressed. I told you about this young man last summer. He's so noble-minded and full of youthfulness, which you just never see these days among our old man, 20-year-olds. He's gutsy. Frank has so much heart. He's so pure and poetic that even though we didn't get to hang out much, he was still so comforting and lush, which I really needed after all my suffering. One day I'll tell you about our parting and everything that was said then, but it's still too fresh. Ah, mate, count yourself lucky you don't know this bittersweet feeling. Really, you are lucky, because it feels more bitter than sweet. Like, I know he's too young to ever be more than a friend, but still, his friendship is so beautiful and pure and intimate, it's exactly what my heart needed. But anyway, enough of this. The big news around Moscow for the gossips is the death of Count Bezukhov and his inheritance. Can you imagine? The three princesses got hardly anything. Prince Vasily got sweet F.A. And who else but Monsieur Pierre got all of the property. And he's been made legitimate too, so now he's Count Bezukhov, possessor of the finest fortune in Russia. The gossips reckon that Prince Vasily made a total dick of himself during the whole affair and now he's gone back to Petersburg with his tail between his legs. To be honest, I don't understand all this stuff about wills and inheritance, but I do know one thing. The young man we used to call plain old Monsieur Pierre has now become Count Bezikov, owner of one of the largest fortunes in Russia. It's really funny watching the mothers burdened with single daughters and the daughters too all suddenly changing their tune towards him. He always seemed like a bit of a loser to me though. People have been trying to matchmake me with someone for the last two years and now those matchmaking chronicles of Moscow are calling me the future Countess Bezukova.
But as you know, I'm not into it. Speaking of marriages, did you know that a while back that universal auntie, Anna Mikhailovna, told me, and she made me swear to secrecy, but whatever, that she was planning on hooking you up with a hubby. And of all people, it was with Prince Vasily's son, Anatole, no less. They are hoping to turn his life around by marrying him to someone rich and distingue. distingue. And they all reckon you're the gal for the job. I felt like I had to tell you that. They reckon he's real handsome and a complete dickhead. That's all I know about him. Anyway, enough goss. I'm running out of paper and Mama wants me to go dine with the Apraxines. Read the mystical book I'm sending you. It's really popular here. It's pretty confusing, kind of too much for the human mind to understand, but still, it's pretty awesome and it calms you down and makes you feel good as. Adieu. Give me adieu. Give my love to your father and my compliments to Mademoiselle Bourine. Hugs and kisses and love. Julie. P.S. Let me know what's happening with your brother and his charming little wife. The princess pondered a while with a thoughtful smile and her bright eyes lit up so that her face looked all lovely. Then she suddenly rose with her heavy footsteps, went to the table. She got out a sheet of paper and rapidly wrote her reply. This is what she wrote also in French. Dear and precious friend, your letter of the 13th was really nice to read. So you still love me, hey? Good to know. Being separated, which you say is so awful for you, does not seem to be affecting you in the usual way. You complain that we're separated, so what would I say if I dared to complain? Me, all alone, out here, away from everyone I wish to be with. Uh, If we didn't have religion to comfort us, life sure would suck. Why do you think I'd frown upon your affection for young Rostov? I'm only harsh on myself about that kind of thing, not others. I totally understand the feelings you're having, but I've never had them myself. So I can't really approve of them or condemn them. My only advice is that I reckon Christian love, love of one's neighbour, love of one's enemy, is worthier and better and sweeter than the love that is inspired in your romantic young heart by Rostov's pretty eyes. We heard about Count Bezukhov dying before your letter came, and my father was pretty upset by it. He said the Count was one of the two living people who understood the great century, and that now it's just him left. He's next in line, but he will do everything in his power to hang around as long as possible. I pray to God such a misfortune won't happen soon. I think you're wrong about Pierre. I've known him since he was just a kid, and he's always seemed to have a good heart, which is the thing I value most in people. About his inheritance and Prince Vasily's part in the whole affair, it's sad for both of them. You know what Christ said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So true. I feel sorry for Prince Vasily, but more so for Pierre. To be so young and burdened with so much wealth... He will be exposed to every temptation under the sun. If someone asks me what I desire most on earth, it would be to be poorer than the most povo beggar. By the way, thanks a million for the book you sent me, the one that's popular in Moscow, but I don't know about that one because you said there's some good stuff in there, but also stuff beyond human comprehension, so why spend time reading something that is impossible to understand? can't be of much use if it's unintelligible. I never understood why some people love getting all confused by confusing books. 
All it does is stirs up doubt and excites their imaginations, which then makes them all get all carried away with exaggerations, which is quite the opposite of Christian simplicity. I think we'd be better off reading the epistles and the gospels. Let's not try to understand the mysteries they contain, because how can we, miserable sinners that we are, know the holy and terrible secrets of providence while we're still stuck in these awful human bodies of ours? which prevent us from entering the eternal. Instead, I reckon, we're best off just studying the divine rules that our Saviour left us. Let's try to conform to them, follow them, and try to always remember that God doesn't want our minds roaming away from his teachings. We'll please God best if we reject all knowledge that doesn't come from him. And the less we try to understand all that mystical stuff that he doesn't want us to learn, the sooner he will reveal to us what we need to know via his divine spirit. My father hasn't mentioned anything to me about a suitor, but he did say he received a letter from Prince Vasily. But regarding their project of marrying me off, I think marriage is a divine institution which we must conform to. However much it sucks, if God wants me to be a mother and a wife, I will be the best mother and wife I can be, and I won't take it upon myself to worry about who he chooses for my husband. My brother wrote me too. He says he'll be in Bald Hills soon with his wife, but unfortunately he won't be able to stay long. He has to go to this bloody war we've been called to. God knows why or how. It's not just where you are in Moscow. Oh, sorry. It's not just where you are in Moscow at the heart of affairs and of the world that is only talking about war. Here amid the fieldwork and the nature, which the locals consider characteristic of the country, Rumours of war are everywhere. My father keeps talking about marches and countermarches, which I have no understanding of, and two days ago during my daily walk through the village I saw something terrible. It was a convoy of our people, conscripted to the army, off to join the war. You should have seen the state of the mothers, wives and children of the men, the way they sobbed. Seems like mankind has forgotten the laws of our divine saviour, who preached love and forgiveness of injuries. Men these days attribute the greatest merit to skill in killing one another. Adieu, my dear friend. May our divine Saviour and his most holy mother keep you in their holy and all-powerful care, Mary. Sending a letter, are you, Princess? I've already sent mine. Wrote to my poor mother, said the smiling Mademoiselle Bourine rapidly in her pleasant, mellow tones and with guttural French R's. She brought a light-hearted and self-satisfied mood into Prince Mary's stressful and gloomy world. Princess, I should warn you, she added in a low voice, and taking pleasure in listening to herself speaking with exaggerated grassoument, the prince has been going off his rocker about Michael Ivanovich. He's in a very bad mood, very grumpy. Brace yourself. Ah, dear friend, replied Princess Mary, I've told you I don't want you to warn me about my father's moods. I try not to judge him, and I don't want others to either. The princess looked at her watch and was alarmed to see that she was supposed to start practicing the clavichord five minutes ago. She went into the sitting room between twelve and two o'clock as the schedule dictated. The prince had a rest while the princess played the clavichord. All right, there we go, another chapter for you. We've met a couple of new characters, Princess Mary 
and her father, old man Bolkonski. All right, have your say about this one over on the subreddit. Thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.